Lord Jesus, we thank you that your love for us, um, it's mysterious because we don't understand all there is to know about you. And yet you have revealed yourself to us and you speak to us. And so as we read your word this morning, Holy Spirit, help us to hear uh, what you're saying to our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read it again. I would be very happy for you if you felt, you know, you're one of those people that just like, I really wanted to say amen this morning, but I just felt a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I have people who come up to me after and they say, you know, Chris, when you were reading that or you were talking about that, and I just really wanted to say amen. I'm like, man, go for it, all right? If there's anything to say amen to in the Bible, and there are lots, this is one of them. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen? Good. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. <laughs> All right, let's just calm down a little bit. Because this chapter just keeps getting better and better, and it's going to take all day to read it if we're going to be amening at the end of every sentence. But what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit, it, is, it gives life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, who, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. 
And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses because we do not know what to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Quite possibly, I would rank Romans chapter 8 as being maybe my favourite chapter in the entire Bible. For a whole host of reasons probably as it is for many Christians all over the world. And while we could easily spend much longer than we have the time this morning pouring through this, I just want to point out one section that I think Paul, who wrote this letter, pivots this chapter around 
Maybe, maybe what I would say is the point of this chapter. Lots of, lots of rich truths in this. But it's important to see how Paul structures his narrative, his, his speech, his understanding. It's a book of reasoning, a chapter of reasoning. And it's how Paul usually writes his letters. These aren't just random thoughts that Paul had one day, he sort of slapped them together a little bit and just went, you know, here's a, a daily thought for the day type of thing. This is actually a cohesive argument. Paul is arguing something. He's reasoning something with us and he wants us to grasp it. He has a very ordered and logical way that he presents his thoughts. Paul is trying to make a point and to do so, he presents a series of theological connections that help sort of cement together all of these verses, in fact, all of this entire letter that he wrote, into a cohesive whole. So we don't have time to follow the whole thread through. Um, but I do want to show you, in your Bibles, where the transition points are in his argument. So that you can see the way that this, I think, structures and, and holds together a little bit. And then we're going to go back and sort of focus in, zoom in on just one particular part. So here's the sort of transition roadmap, I think, of Romans chapter 8. I'd love it if you could just look, grab your Bible, make sure it's open in front of you, or scroll to the right part of the screen to be able to look at it. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Verse 1 and 2. Let's just read that. In particular, I'm going to highlight that very first word there. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because, and there's another transition word, therefore, here's a truth, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because, and now he's going to give you a, a reason for that, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of of sin and death. There's our very first transitional point in this journey that Paul takes us through in Romans chapter 8. Um, the therefore connects us back to the seven chapters really that have preceded this chapter, okay? Um, the entire chapter of Romans chapter 8 isn't disconnected. It's not like the next chapter that you get to in a book and you think, well, this is just some new information now. This connects and extends what Paul has been talking about. In the seven previous chapters to this, Paul has been both supporting and dismantling the types of ideas that people have about how do we get right with God? How, how do you get right with God? People say that, you know, I really need to get right with God. Great. How do you do that? What... What's the uh, journey that you must go on to get right with God? And there's lots of different ways that people will try to answer that. And many of those answers have something in common. And it basically goes like this. I need to get right with God. I need to clean my act up. I need to make some different choices. I need to do something. I need to follow a code. I need to behave better, whatever it might be. And Paul spends seven chapters dismantling that idea. 
He calls that, he summarizes that by saying self-righteous. And you might think, well, hang on, Chris, that's, you know, aren't self-righteous people people who think that they are better than everybody else? That's not really true. Self-righteous people think that righteousness, being right with God, is something that they can control. If I just work harder, if I am better, and if I'm better for longer, then maybe at the end of my life, the scales will weigh out and I will have accumulated more good things that please God than things that displease Him and therefore I will be righteous and I have made myself righteous, right? Paul spends seven chapters dismantling that and he says you will never, ever be able to do that. Even if your intentions are good, even if it's not in any way prideful, you won't be able to do it. None of us will. And he dismantles the idea of self-righteousness and he points us to the hope of righteousness that can be found in Christ alone. That's where salvation comes from. That's how righteousness comes to us. These chapters, chapters 1 through 7, tear down the arguments for a a works-based salvation that's built on the idea that the law of God, as good as the law is, is able to save us and make us righteous. And so what follows that word, therefore, is the beginning of the next stage of Paul's argument that runs all the way through this book. And really now he begins to tease out the implications of this gospel of grace that we hold on to and that we love. In other words, he asks the question, what difference does it make that salvation comes through grace by faith? What difference does that make? What does this good news mean for those who trust in it? And so the first 11 verses of this chapter, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, lay out the foundation of what Paul wants us to understand in light of the gospel. The truths that are found here in these 11 verses, those first 11 verses are beautiful, right? They're ones that we want to yell out amen to. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Of course. But that's not only what Paul wants us to grasp. Even those truths are pointing us forward. They're leading us somewhere in the way that Paul writes. Paul is writing them to lead us forward in our thinking, to grasp even greater implications of the gospel, and also to to sort of ground our confidence in profound realities that that maybe we would otherwise overlook. And I know that's true because of the way that verse 12 begins. And that's our next transition point on this roadmap. The first was therefore in verse 1. The next one in verse 12 says, have a look at it in your Bible. So then, all right, or something similar in your translation. So then, or another therefore. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
the, the therefore that connected us back into the first seven chapters of the book that lay out these foundational realities of the implication of the gospel are leading us forward to realize something about our standing with God. Not only, not only can we live this life in Christ with no condemnation at all, which is a miracle because we all know our own lives, right? We all know the type of week that we've had, the disappointments, the good intentions that we failed on, the things that we knew that we ought to do but didn't. And we can so easily stand before God and think, you know what, I am such a failure. God must just look at me and say, what a disappointment. What a miracle of the gospel that in Christ God looks at you regardless of all of those failures, all of that shame, all of those uh, good intentions and all the things that you struggle and carry with on your shoulder and God looks at you in Christ and he says, there is now no condemnation, none. What a mystery. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's the next roadmap. It, it drives our reasons forward to grapple with a profound reality that is true for every person that rests, really rests in the sufficiency of Christ for their salvation. If you are in Christ, it's not a license, Paul says, for you to go, well, God's not going to condemn me, so let's live it up, right? No. Paul says, you don't face condemnation, but so then you've also been set free from the obligation that you have to the flesh to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Let's skip down to verse 18. We'll see our next transition. Chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. All right. Paul now pauses in this sort of forward march of his reasoning as he's trying to push our thinking towards the implications of the gospel by showing us that we are grappling with the here and the now, but it's not just the here and the now. The here and the now have eternal consequences, right? The gospel creates a new reality for us as Christians by which we can sort of interpret the matrix some of you are, I used to say The Matrix. Some of you are young enough to know that film. You know how old that film is now? It's like 20 years old or something. Like, some of you know the film The Matrix. Some of you don't. Um, I'm not going to go through the plot of it. But basically, it's this guy who can sort of see past the reality of the world that he's been conditioned to see, and he can see that we're all living inside a computer program. Something exciting. Um, <laughs> But he learns to interpret the world he, he's living in by not just what he can see, but what he know is, knows is truly happening. All right? Now, there's a little parallel to that for us as Christians. Because the world that we live in right now, it presents to us as being very real. And yet Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The gospel helps us interpret the world that we're living in, the realities around us, in such a way that we're able to see not just the here and the now, but the eternal consequences of this life. And Paul says, the here and the now, 
it's not even worth comparing to what will come. All right? Then finally, we get to the last transition, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? Paul's coming to the end of this chapter and he's starting to draw together the strings of his thinking and he wants us to come to some conclusions about it. Paul weaves together his reasoning through chapter 8 and helps us to draw the necessary conclusions that align with the truth of the gospel. And he underlines the confidence that we should have in the implications of this glorious gospel. And we love those closing verses, don't we? Verses 31 down to the end of the chapter of Romans 8. Now we're more than conquerors. Okay. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's the sort of confidence that the gospel produces in believers. And so here's that transitional roadmap in summary. It starts with in verse 1, therefore. Then it goes to so then. For I consider, what then? And we could spend a lot of time in each one of those and really unpack it. But I just want to return to one of those sections. What I believe sits at the heart of Paul's argument and forms sort of a pivot point around which his logic takes shape. And it's that transitional roadmap that starts with, so then, back in verse 12. So find it in your Bible. I want to read just verse 12 down to verse 17 again for us so that we've got that fresh in our minds. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we might also be glorified with him. Here's the, the logical conclusion that Paul has been leading us towards. That's profound. It really is profound. And this is, this is what he, he puts to us. He says, rather than being enslaved by the flesh, rather than being bound up by its power, and rather than being obligated to fulfill the flesh's demands, rather than our defining identity being associated with slavery... We are now known as God's children. Right? God's sons, God's daughters. Maybe, maybe we just are so used to thinking of ourselves, oh, the children of God, right? Oh, God's sons and God's daughters. That, that reality is earth-shattering in the history of mankind. It is an earth-shattering revelation in the entire storyline of the Bible that we can now know God within the confines of a 
parent-child relationship rather than a master-servant relationship. Most people, whether they believe in the one true and living God or not, if they in some way over the period of history of mankind have served gods of some sort, tribal gods, you know, spiritual deities or whatever it may be, there's a very clear understanding that we are serving them, right? They are our master. We must sacrifice to them. We must, um, bring, we must bring our offerings to them to appease them or something like that. And we might fall into the trap ourselves of thinking of God as being similar. That we must serve him like he is our master. And yes, it's true. We call him Lord. But Jesus says, not only will you call me Lord, but you'll call me friend. He says, I will be with you closer than a brother. And here Paul says, you know what? As we stand before God with no condemnation now, all sin dealt with by the righteousness of Christ, we haven't had to try and appease him in any way. We can't make ourselves righteous one bit. We can now know God as Father. Look at verse 16 and verse 17 again. The Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. We're God's slaves, not strangers to God, God's children. And if children, verse 17 says, also heirs, that's a strange word for many generations now, heirs, not hairs, not the hairs. I used to think, as a kid sitting in church, like these younger ones and younger ones are up at kids' church. We didn't have kids' church when I was young. Sat in big church. And um, I think, how weird. Why are we the hairs of God? <laughs> not hairs, all right? Heirs of God. Um, An heir to, like... If you watch Downton Abbey or one of those sort of old English shows, period shows, you know, an heir, someone who was promised the throne, someone who was the next in line to rule, someone who was going to receive the inheritance of the family, the heir of the estate. We are the heirs of God. And more profoundly, co-heirs with Christ. We are now rightfully able to call out, and he uses a word here, Hebrew word, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And there's been a lot of discussion around what that word means. And, and what we do know is that the word Abba is a word of um, intimacy. It's a word that only the closest people in the family might use to call their father Father, And some people say, well, it's very much like us being able to call out to God and call him like weird for some reason for me. I don't know why. Maybe you did and that's fine. But I actually think it's less to do with the words that we use to address God and more to do with the tone. So think about it this way. It's quite possible, right, for a, let's use a son and a father, um, earthly son, earthly father in a family somewhere. 
And we know that not all dads are good dads. We know that dads can be uh, strong-handed. We know that it's possible for a father to be abusive and to frighten their son into submission, right? To threaten. Um, and when we've experienced that, or if you've experienced that, you understand the, the hurt and the damage that that occurs. But, but it's still quite possible for that son to address their dad as father. They do it out of fear, right? They hear their dad come in and dad says, are you home? And they might say, yes, father. Yes, dad. And the way that they speak it communicates more than just the words they use, isn't it? The way that they might say that might carry with it fear, might carry with it uncertainty, confusion. And yet you can use the word father and you can communicate all of those things. But change the scenario for a little while and think about a dad who is created in the way that dads were meant to be created, who used their strength as a form of protection for the family to create a sense of security in their home, a dad who has loved and sacrificed much for their children. And that type of father walks home and walks in the door and says, you home, son? And they say, yes, dad. They use exactly the same words, but they communicate something completely different. They say, yes, dad, and they, they're running, they're in the, in the process of running down the hallway to jump into their father's arms. They know he'll be there. They'll know he'll catch. They, they know that he's safe. And so that the way that they speak the words means everything. And that's what I think Paul is talking about here. He says, we now can call out, Abba, Father, yes, Dad. Without any sense of fear or uncertainty. With complete trust and complete abandon. That's the type of relationship Paul says we have with the Father the eternal one of the ages, the great I am, Abba, Father. That's the tone. That's the sound with which our speech is infused now. Now that we are known as the heirs of God. If that weren't enough, Paul points out that if we are heirs, that makes us co-heirs with Christ. Right, to be honest, I cannot even wrap my head around that. Co-heirs with Christ. I mean, really, one part of me just wants to talk to Paul and just go, Paul, are you sure? <laughs> like, I know that the Spirit led you and I know that you wrote the Bible, you're the greatest missionary that ever lived, but are you kidding? Right? That I or you would ever stand beside Jesus and be called a co-anything is a miracle. Jesus, the perfect one, the one who cast planets and space into being, the one who spoke and everything that was existed, has existed, will exist, all exist for him. He is the pinnacle of all. And Paul says, you are a co-heir with him. But that's what we've been given in Christ. Right? You are with 
Christ, and more importantly, Christ is with you. Christ is with you. But how could that be? How can this be possible? How can it be that Jesus is with us and that we are with him? Well, to answer that, we only need to go back to the foundational truths that Paul lays out at the beginning of this chapter. So go back there with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. All right? What the law couldn't do, what you couldn't do, God did. He, there's some important words here, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did he do that? It's there. Verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us. That's why we can experience freedom from our enslavement to the flesh. Rather than condemning us, Jesus condemned sin instead. You see that that same word that's used in verse 1, the one that we love so much? There is therefore now no condemnation. But then... Down in verse 3, it says, Jesus is condemning. Well, this is all about the right type of condemnation, isn't it? It's where the condemnation is directed to. Rather than condemning us, Jesus condemned sin instead. And all of this happened, Paul said, because Jesus came in the flesh. We've been talking about this nativity. Why is it so important that nativity existed? Why is it so important that this time of the year we remember little baby Jesus in the manger? Why didn't God just show up someday and say, here I am? Well, he came as a tiny little baby. He came in the flesh. He came in the likeness of sin. Not sin itself, but in the likeness of it. He came so that we could experience everything that we love about Romans chapter 8. God sent his son into the world in the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh so that we might know the righteousness of God. So that we might know what it means to call out Abba, Father. So that we might know what it means to stand there and say, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember what John 1 said? The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. I've been trying to not use social media very much in the last 12 months. I've had some gains, some losses. But I have noticed there's quite a a popular little thing going around social media where people start some type of statement, some type of big, they're going to make some big profound statement now, but they start it with these words. I don't know 
who needs to hear this, but... Have you seen those? I don't know who needs to hear this, but the government stinks, or whatever it is, you know. Whatever some earth-shattering, profound thing they've got to say about. It's a kind of, you know, like, I'm going to say it anyway, and maybe this applies to you, but maybe it doesn't. So I don't know who needs to hear this, but... Well, in this case, everyone needs to know this. Everyone needs to hear this this morning. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. As we come to him in faith, his grace is poured out with so much ferocity that every scrap of sin and shame that you carry has been completely consumed by the blaze of his love towards you. You need to hear this. Sin has felt the full force of God's condemnation so that you can stand side by side with Jesus, his arm around your shoulders, his smile directed towards your face, and all you will hear from him is, I love you. You need to hear that this morning. I do. We need to hear that every single day. We need to sing about it, right? We need to preach it. Sometimes we need to just whisper it through tears in the midst of our suffering. And sometimes we need to shout about it with laughter in the moments of celebration in our life. We need to be continually reminded that Jesus is with us and we are with him in the gospel. We need to be continually reminded of this grace upon grace that we've received from God. Why? What does the reality of Jesus being with us produce? Well, it produces this. Why don't you stand with me as we finish this part anyway of our service by reading Romans chapter 8, starting from verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? What things? All the things that we've just been talking about. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, and he is, If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the question, right? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who's up for that? Because it's the God, the one God, the true God. God is the one who justifies Who's the one who condemns us? Right? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction? Sure feels like it some days, doesn't it? 
What about distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? Any of those? As it's written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. All of us here know what it means to face the hardships of this life. Can any of those hardships separate us? No, verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. Not because we're anything special. Not because we've developed some sort of internal fortitude from life that we've learned how to grit our teeth and just sort of press on. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers Paul covers himself by the end of that verse and he says, or anything else. It doesn't matter what you put in that list. It doesn't matter there's something in your head right now just going, Paul didn't talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, he did. Anything else. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. That's worth an amen. Amen? Amen? Lord, thank you for your love towards us. Thank you that we can experience what it means to cry out to you, Abba, Father, to stand before you with confidence knowing that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To know that we can stand miraculously today, heirs of God, children of God, co-heirs with Christ. We don't call out to you like some overlord or some master that controls, but instead we call out to you and know you this morning as a father. And all of that is because you gave up your son. You sent him here to be just like us, to be for us, and to be with us. And so we call out to you, Abba, Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the confidence that we can stand in today, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.